0: me encourage you to find your way into the book of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at some of the final verses there from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. So at the last chapter of Matthew, and we'll begin reading verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, uh, the previous passage we looked at uh, last week in a very joyous and uh, way of celebration, we looked at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the account there in Matthew, and now we're going to pick it up in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Church historian Philip Schaff made this observation about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Quote, Jesus of Nazareth... "...without money or arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, Jesus shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words." of life, as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, Jesus set more pens in motions and furnished themes for more sermons, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men in ancient and modern times." Unquote. I don't know if you followed all that, but he's saying that Jesus, uh, without an education, without writing anything, and without an army, has done tremendously influential, uh, has influenced the world in profound and and amazing ways. And my question in following up that statement is this. How do we account for the worldwide impact of Jesus Christ? How do we can explain that Jesus would transform his disciples from intimidated fearful followers to bold witnesses who, according to the book of Acts, turn the world upside down? How could one person set in motion a worldwide movement that continues to expand even in the 21st century despite persecution and opposition? Part of the explanation, I'm convinced, lies in understanding this section of Matthew 28. Of course, we need to know the whole book of Matthew, but it seems to me that chapter 28 is critical in our understanding of these things. No one can properly understand the events and statements here in verses 16 to 20 of chapter 28 apart from all that has preceded it in the first 27 chapters. That's a given. But this passage contains a mandate that Jesus gave to his followers after his resurrection. It summarizes what could be called the Christian mission. And those who would downplay this passage or would, who would ignore it and somehow just skip it and not deal with it are going to actually disconnect the words that were spoken by the author of these, that is, the risen Jesus Christ rose victoriously from the grave and somehow you're going to omit the significant conclusion he brought to this particular gospel. And that's one of the things I want to emphasize as we begin this morning. If you notice and read through as we've been working through the Matthew's gospel, it does not end with his death. The book of Matthew does not end with Jesus' resurrection. Even though that is an amazing enough event, you'd think it would end with just that. It does not end with several accounts of his appearances. The gospel of Jesus Christ concludes with a commissioning of his apostles and followers. And Jesus's directive revealed his priority for his people until the end of the age. And as we examine this critically important passage over several Sundays, and I'm going to sort of slow down the pace here, and we're going to try to unpack these verses because they are very significant and very important to understand its, its uh, practical implication as well as its its breadth, and its depth of uh, significance, I want to consider four aspects of the commission of this all-conquering king. And this morning, I'm just going to focus on one. And that is, if you notice, follow along your notes, just have one point there. The main point is Jesus the king commissioned with authority. Now, before explaining what Jesus expected his disciples to do, Jesus made sure they knew first why they needed to do what he told them. Why they should heed this particular command. And there is biblical precedent for this pattern. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God set forth the requirements of his covenant people, the children of Israel, to Moses. And Where was Moses at that time? On top of Mount Sinai. And referred to as the Ten Commandments... If you read them, and not only do they appear in Exodus chapter 20, they also appear in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we find at the beginning, the preamble to the Ten Commandments, we find words that include the reasons why these standards are to be followed. Follow along, listen to me now as I read Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verses 1 through 3. God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, Your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Those are very important statements that would evoke a tremendous sense of amazement at what God had accomplished for his people who had struggled over 400 years in bondage. So he brings them out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he begins to list all of the responsibilities and obligations. Of his people, after reminding the children of Israel that He had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, God set forth these ten words, the Ten Commandments, regulating how they were to relate to Him and how they were to relate to each other. Now you say, what does that have to do with this? Well, I think it's significant that at the conclusion of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, who is the prophet greater than Moses is standing on a Galilean mountain and he is speaking to his people, commissioning them. And he's, before he does that, he gives them an underlying reason as to why they are to carry out his mandate. And so you notice there verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He starts by explaining he has a proven authority. Letter A, a proven authority. Now, this word authority is not the first time it's been mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. Matter of fact, Jesus taught as one who had authority, we read in the end of chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel. We also read in chapter 9 that Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sins, which clearly was a claim to be God. Only God could forgive sin. Then in chapter 8, we realize that Jesus demonstrated an authority in terms of His miracles, It showed he had an authority over the forces of nature. Remember, he stilled the waters just by his words. He stilled the waters and calmed the the, uh, winds. He actually had authority over evil spirits in chapter 8, over disease, and even over death. Jesus proved in countless ways that he was not merely a person who claimed to have authority. He demonstrated a unique and unmatched and wide-ranging authority. If you've been following us through the book of Matthew, you've got to give me that point. That's clearly something that Matthew has emphasized throughout this gospel. But it not only was a proven authority, but secondly, Jesus drew attention to one more reason why his followers are expected to carry out his commission. And this is the emphasis he places here in this text. His authority is preeminent. His authority is preeminent. What do we mean by that? Well, he goes on to say that he has all authority... In heaven and on earth. Now that's quite a statement. And because God the Father had vindicated Jesus' atoning death and work, his atoning work of death on the cross, by raising him from the dead and providing proof that indeed Jesus was God and that he has been approved by the Father for all that he did in his offering of himself in a sacrifice, Jesus now is declaring to his people. I am one who is sovereign and Lord. I have sovereign lordship. Jesus has the freedom and the right to speak and act as he pleases. He is the only one who can act in that capacity. He does so not only as the creator, Colossians 1.16, Jesus made everything, But he is also now the redeemer of his people. So he's speaking to his people and he's giving them a mandate. And now having been raised from the dead, it's obvious that he has clearly successfully purchased his church with his own blood and claiming now to have all authority in heaven. He claimed, of course, to have the authority of God. He is speaking as one who has absolute authority, sovereign lordship. And that would be reason enough, it would seem to me, for Jesus' disciples to have reason to obey Him. But there's more. Jesus' claim to have all authority in heaven also includes His authority over the spiritual forces of wickedness. If you look in Ephesians 6, you'll find mentioned there in a context of spiritual warfare that there are rulers, there are powers, there are world forces of darkness that operate in the larger Created order, And a vast army of demonic spirits have worked tirelessly to oppose the kingdom of light ever since Satan rebelled and left, led them in a mutiny against God's righteous rule. But the one who is commanding his followers to make disciples is the one who has triumphed over the forces of evil. And Jesus is saying the days of these enemies are numbered. And Jesus spoke of the one as one who was raised from the dead, Ephesians chapter 1. He is raised from the dead, is now seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but the one to come. There's nobody greater, even in the spiritual realm, among all of the demonic spirits that exist in this world, there is none greater than Jesus. In other words, no one will ever overthrow Him. His rule and His reign will prevail. He is the absolute sovereign commander-in-chief who will bring those who oppose Him into subjection. And Jesus is authorized, therefore, to commission His disciples, His followers to do anything He chooses, and He will enable His disciples to accomplish what He desires for them to do and to be successful in doing that. Why? Because He is the sovereign Lord over all. Now it's important we understand that as we look at this first part of His authority. It is indeed a preeminent authority. He has all authority in heaven. That's quite a statement. It's quite a statement. But notice the text also goes on to say that He has authority over all all authority in the earth. Now, how do we understand that? What's he referring to? What What is he alluding to? I would understand that to mean that Jesus is providentially governing over all that happens in this world. In other words, the events of earth do not take place randomly. They do not take place by chance. That all the events of the world, every event is directed by God to His wise and perfect ends. Romans 8.28, All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. According to Ephesians chapter 1, God works all things after the counsel of His will. All things, not just some things. And Jesus' sovereignty is not limited to just the big events that we hear about on the evening news. I find it interesting, the whole phenomenon of news. What becomes news? What makes it into our uh, listing of Yahoo headlines or whatever you read every day, Newsday headlines? What is it that you watch on the CBS Evening News, on Fox News or whatever, CNN, whatever you're watching? Who decides what was significant enough to draw attention to this particular event or what somebody is saying is worth broadcasting and let anybody else hear about those things? Are those events just happening by randomness? The world is just uh, unfolding in 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 a way that just shows it's all just chance and randomness? Not at all. And what is happening is what we ought to look for every day is the sovereign hand of God is operating in this world. And Jesus speaks to his people and says, Listen, I am speaking to you as one now who has been raised from the dead. I am the sovereign lord over this whole earth and all of the spiritual forces in the heavens that you can't even see and don't even know half of what's going on out there. And he says, "I have a plan." And the plan that the Father has revealed for the Son is that he would have first place in everything. Colossians chapter 1. Not just in the ecclesiastical world, not just in the world of the church or religiosity, but God's program is that Jesus not be a territorial ruler who has control over in matters that just pertain to churches or just parachurch ministries that go on that we seem to be so focused on, but Jesus is Lord of all of creation, and He is to have the supremacy in every sphere of life. Every square inch of this world he made, he is to be supreme and preeminent over all. Colossians 1.18. So it's not too surprising then. Now follow me here. It's not too surprising, therefore, that Jesus who claimed all authority on heaven and in earth, that he has absolute authority now as one who has authority over earth. He has absolute authority over the nations of the world and over every people group that make up the population of the 6. plus billion people that populate planet Earth. You see, Jesus is not merely, this is an important point now for his his disciples to understand this, Jesus is not merely the king of the Jews, which was the main emphasis that Matthew set forth, he's writing to a Jewish audience. But it's important to understand that he is also the king of the world's Muslims. He is also the king of the world's Hindus. He is also the king of the world's Buddhists or Sikhs or animists, people who worship spirits who reside in trees or streams or the sun or whatever. He is also the God and king over the atheists of the world because Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all. And therefore, Jesus is king of not just those who speak Aramaic or Hebrew or Mandarin or English or Urdu or Arabic or Punjabi, or any of the other 6,000 languages that are spoken in our earth. Jesus' authority extends far beyond the boundaries of Israel. And that was an incredibly important point that the folks who were there on that occasion, those 11 men who were there, they needed to see the breadth of what God has on his heart to do through Jesus, the sovereign Lord of all. Now, that's hard to deal with sometimes, particularly when we like the way we like things for ourselves. I like to hang out with people who speak my language. I had a reminder of that experience on Tuesday as I went to a free class at the library in which they're trying to teach Spanish to people who hope to travel in a Spanish-speaking country. Well, I'm hoping someday to get to Ecuador and possibly see this orphanage where Catherine, my daughter, has been serving for a number of months. So I thought, well, let's learn some Spanish. I took French for some strange reason. that was the only one they offered me when I was in high school, and so my Spanish is absolutely zero. So I go there, and, to be honest with you, it was no help at all, because they just basically had a list of 35 words that have to do with airport and runway and seatbelt and you know all this. And I'm like, I don't even know how to pronounce the words, much less. how are we going to say a sentence? And so it just wasn't very helpful. But the point was this was for me. I realize how I am so limited in how I can build a bridge to someone who's different from me because I only speak my language. Whereas many people in the world speak what? Two languages? Three languages? Probably many of them speak four languages. Anybody in Europe speaks at least two or three. And I only speak my own language. I studied Greek. I studied Hebrew. I can't even remember half of what I studied. I'm not very good with languages. What's the point here? I have to begin to see And become concerned about the fact that that Jesus is the one who is the Lord over all the different language groups of the world. They are far different than you and me, but that does not mean they are not significant as Jesus is Lord over them just like He's Lord over me. So Jesus' authority extends over every country, every ethnic group, every race, every culture, every language group, and every age group. Now, that's sort of laying the the groundwork of some principles I want to draw here as practical implications. So let's follow along here. Let's bring this down to think through some practical implications here regarding this statement of Jesus as one who gave his commission with authority. First of all, we notice that there's a mission mandate here. I'm going to start with a quote that's in your notes, I believe, by John Stott, a very, very uh, well loved and well-respected uh, pastor, author, uh, uh, a great servant of God who recently was called home to glory in his 90s, uh, just recently died. And this is what he says. Now follow along this statement. This, he puts a lot of things in this statement regarding this issue about Jesus' authority. If the authority of Jesus were circumscribed on earth, if he were but one of many religious teachers, one of many Jewish prophets, one of many divine incarnations, we would have no mandate to present Jesus to the nations as Lord and Savior of the world. And if the authority of Jesus were limited to heaven, if he had not decisively overthrown the principalities and powers, we might still proclaim him to the nations, but we would never be able to, quote, turn them from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God Acts 26 verse 18 only because all authority on earth belongs to Christ dare we go to all nations and only because all authority in heaven as well as his have we any hope of success unquote wow what a great statement that is What he's saying is that because Jesus has authority in the heavens, there's hope that we'll succeed over very insurmountable odds of the spiritual forces that are working against the kingdom of light. And also he's saying that we have no business going telling anybody about Jesus unless Jesus truly is the one who has all authority in this earth. And because Jesus is king over all, we are to make his kingship known among all the people he has made. We cannot ignore the mandate he gave. And that's one of the reasons we're slowing down as we look at this text. It's not optional. He doesn't come to those 11 and say, listen, I've got a suggestion for you. See if you can work this into your schedule somehow and consider taking on something like this. He doesn't present it that way at all. He speaks as one who has authority and he commands them. It's not merely a suggestion. It's not something that is optional. Jesus not only has the authority to command us to be his witnesses, he also, of course, has the power to enable us to follow through and have some measure of success in carrying out his command. Why? Because he has absolute authority. There's encouragement as well as there is a sense of challenge based on his authority. Now before we get into just looking at this only as you gotta, you gotta, you gotta with a wagging of a finger, I think it's important just to back up just for a second, and I want to blend together number two and number three in your notes to combine together the thoughts of humble worship and complete surrender. say, what are you talking about? Humble worship and complete surrender. May I draw your attention in this text to verses 16 and 17? Because here are these disciples. He says, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated, which means what? They're doing what they were asked to do. He told them to meet them in a predetermined place, and they show up on time. There they are. And here they are, indicating that what? They're not busy doing things they could have been doing with other trades, other pursuits. They've given those up, and there they are listening to their king. And then look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Yes, some doubted. Some were questioning what in the world all this means. But they worshiped them, which means they went down on their face before him. And when you go down on your face before someone who's before you, it means I am humbling myself because at that moment I am vulnerable. You can, you can With one blow, you can just completely uh, make me no longer able to function. It is to lower yourself before someone who is obviously much greater than you. And I would just suggest to you this statement of Jesus' commission will never impact our hearts until we have humbled ourselves and reminded ourselves and become in awe of the one who spoke those words. Until we worship Jesus, until we come to the point where we humble ourselves to say, I surrender everything I am to you in light of what you've done for me, that you'll never really have this kind of commission make any significant impact on your life in terms of carrying it forward and doing what he's asked us to do until we have a desire to say, I yield everything I am to you. I surrender everything I am because you're a king and Lord over all and your love has drawn me to yourself and you are my king, my Lord, my master. Here I am, I'll do what you ask me to do. Not because we're being mandated to do it, but because our hearts respond to him out of a sense of love, devotion of amazement by his grace and indeed joy in the gospel as Dave said earlier. Let me also just suggest to you that you say, well, isn't this just for a select number of people within the body of Christ? I mean, you know, we're talking about making disciples of all nations, so that doesn't apply to me. I'm a carpenter. I'm a banker. I'm a, I'm a person who's a sales clerk. You know, I'm a teacher. You know, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a retiree. I mean, that's, how does, this, doesn't, this doesn't seem to apply to me. I'm not one of those 11 standing there. May I just try to encourage you to broaden out your understanding of these words? To listen to what I think is the kind of heartbeat I hope we would have about wanting all the nations to worship Jesus. To want all the people who may speak different languages than you, but their lives are lived with a sense of emptiness. There is no significant reason why they're living if they don't know and enjoy and have the joy of Jesus Christ as theirs. And So I have a quote, I believe it's in in the notes there, by the Dutch statesman and theologian Abraham Kuiper. Keeper, I don't know how you say his name. He made this statement. In the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which the Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, that is mine. In other words, if we see that every aspect of life belongs to Christ, that means that whatever you're pursuing is falling under the umbrella of that belongs to Christ. So whether it's anything in all the whole realm of human existence, everything is designed to bring glory to God through Christ. And that includes the business realm, the realm of the arts, the realm of medicine, the realm of education and international trade, the realm of technology. It all has to do with under the authority and under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And what this world desperately needs is to have people who are pursuing the kingdom of Christ in those realms of this world and have a passion for His glory in whatever you're doing and have a heartbeat for what God seeks to do to make His glory known in all the nations of the earth. As I've been thinking about these thoughts, two things, and then I'm going to equate with this. There's a very, very challenging book called Radical. I dare you to read it. It may well indeed change your life. It is radical. It'll make a radical impact on you as well. I want to quote from this book. It's written by David Platt. He's a pastor of a church down south. He is involved himself in traveling internationally to a number of different contexts of ministry and knows people from all over the world And he has really been changed and transformed by interacting with world Christians whose devotion to Christ is so amazing to him. He comes home and shares what's going on, and his church has become changed in such a radical way. Listen to some of the things that he says here about the idea of worship and surrender. If you were to ask the average Christian sitting in a worship service on Sunday morning to summarize the message of Christianity you would most likely hear something along the lines of, quote, the message of Christianity is that God loves me, unquote. Or someone else might say, quote, the message of Christianity is that God loves me enough to send his son Jesus to die for me, period, unquote. As wonderful as this sentiment sounds, he says, is it biblical? Isn't it incomplete, based on what we have seen in the Bible, that God loves me, quote, unquote, is not the essence of biblical Christianity? Because if God loves me is the message of Christianity, then what is the object of Christianity? God loves me. Me. I'm reading now. Christianity's object is me. Therefore, when I look for a church, I look for the music that best fits me and the programs that best cater to me and my family. And when I make plans for my life and career, it's about what works for me and my family. When I consider the house I live in, the car I drive, the clothes I wear, and the way I live, I will choose according to what is best for me. This is the version of Christianity that largely prevails in our culture. This is not biblical Christianity, according to David Platt. The message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period, as if we were the object of our own faith. The message of biblical Christianity, now get this, is, quote, God loves me so that I might make him... His ways, His salvation, His glory, and His greatness known among all the nations. Now God is the object of our faith. And Christianity centers around Him. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. That is such a radical statement. Trying again to paint the picture of the supremacy of God in all things. And so therefore, he goes on to talk about it in our reading. I hope you noticed in the reading we did earlier today. It's not unusual, surprising for God to show he has a passion for his glory and his greatness among all the peoples of the earth. And to disconnect God's blessing from God's global purpose is to spiral downward into an unbiblical, self-saturated Christianity that misses the point of God's grace. God creates, blesses, and saves each of us for a radically global purpose so that we can make much of God to all the peoples of the earth. say, where are you going with this? I just want to conclude with this one thought. I don't know how many of you have been here long enough in our church to have known some dear saints, Bob and Ruth Merz, but they have impacted the life of our church for a number of years when they were part of us in ways I don't think any of us could ever measure the blessing. And part of the blessing was, Bob and Ruth, Mur- Ruth was a musician, Bob was an educator. He was an expert on, on reading. He was a, uh, a reading expert in the Brentwood School District. And they took their skills and their knowledge, and they had a passion for the glory of God among all the peoples of the earth. So much so that they would constantly be writing to missionaries around the world, praying for people who are taking the translation of the word to some, uh, some obscure language group in Papua New Guinea or wherever it was. And here they are finally getting to the comfortable place in life where they can retire. Both have their educational uh, retirement from the educational uh, uh, system here on the island. And so they're ready to sort of go off into a nice, comfortable lifestyle. What do they do? They pull up stakes, they go into training, and eventually go and serve for about eight or nine years in Papua New Guinea at Yucarumpa. Remember that? At the base where SIL, Summer, of Lent, Summer Institute of Linguistics, where they have their base of translation and support for people who are doing translation work in Papua New Guinea. And I was just looking through some of the letters that they had sent me from their correspondence from there. And here they talk about with great enthusiasm, great excitement, pray for us, we're going to the dedication of a New Testament, to so the such and such tribe. Remember they used to come back and show us those videos and say, look, Look at this. This is what was going on. This was what, the, And they were so excited about what? Not themselves, not their own pursuits. They were excited about what God is doing for the glory of his name among all the people of the earth. And Ruth taught music and Bob taught ling, uh, literacy training. And they said, here we are. We're involved in a bigger thing than ourselves. And it affected many people in our church in ways that we'll never be able to measure. This. They began to become more widely concerned with the great passion for God, for his glory among all nations. What do I say this for? All I can say is, I don't think any of us can push someone to obey the commission that God gave us. We have to be drawn by the one who gives the command. Being awed by his authority, but being even more awed by the willingness he is to use people like us who receive grace to then spread that grace to others who need to know him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, again, we thank you that we have, if we know Christ, and if we've come to Him in faith, simple childlike faith, and we've come repenting of our sin, we thank you, Father, that we have been richly blessed in Christ. Oh, what grace we've received. Oh, what love has been shed abroad upon us. But Lord, we must come and admit that many of us are tempted often to end the process there and just continually focus on what that means for me and for myself and for I and Lord I pray that you would help us those of us who are here today to be reminded of the risen Christ the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth that he's calling us to join him in sharing the grace that we've received, sharing the love that we've received, sharing the mercy that has now been extended to us to spread it further and further to many people in this world who do not know you. And Lord, we know that even in the the island right here, there are so many people who are from all over different parts of ethnic cultures and language groups right here in our backyard. Give us a passion for them, Lord. Give us a burden for them. Give us a willingness to to slow down and enter into a conversation, get to know them, build a bridge into their lives lives and hearts. And other people, Lord, who are different from us, people whose lives are broken, among the billions of people around the world, Lord, help us to look beyond just our own comforts, our own pursuits. Help us, Lord, to have a passion for your your glory and for your name and for your salvation to the ends of the earth. We pray that even in our own church, Lord, you give us a greater sense of of desire to pray for those who are ministering, who are taking your word, and even for us as we seek to sow your word in the lives of people who don't know you. Lord, help us to have a desire to heed your call, to humble ourselves under the, under the voice of the sovereign Lord who says, go and make disciples. Lord, we need your help. Thank you that we have confidence to see that whatever good progress happens, it's because of your greatness and your supremacy in all things.